Hey, welcome to South Bend City Church. I'm Jason, if we haven't met, and I'm really, really happy to welcome you here. Uh, I'll let you know a couple of ways that you can be a little more involved in what's going on here, but first, I just want to say that we want to be a community that's good at the words thank you, and uh, there's a lot of different people who are helping us become a community together, but today I was thinking about how whether it's uh, the musicians who are on the stage today or others who show up week after week after week, guys, the musicians get here way earlier than I do. And I don't know if you know any musicians, but I'm also a musician, and the reason I don't get here when they get here is I don't have to, and no musician wants to be up that early. But they keep showing up that early and just helping us um, grow together. So do you want to say thank you to all of our musicians? Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're, uh, let's see. Let me sort through the announcements in my head here. Okay, I'm good. Um, if you want to make an offering, we'll give you a chance to do that. We'll pass the baskets around. But like always, there's no pressure at all to do that. And if you want to give online, that's another way that you can do that. Um, while this uh, being passed around, I just wanted to share this story with you because it moved me so much and reminded me of um, what we believe about where God has us, like quite physically and literally here. Last week, I had a friend who uh, was in from out of town and they flew into town, so they didn't have a car with them. So they Ubered to church on Sunday morning here in Building 112. And uh, my friend got here, and they were describing their Uber ride, which, like, Uber's almost always good for a story of some sort, right? Um, so she describes the Uber driver. Uh, apparently this is like a, she describes him as a little bit grizzly, which is not super comforting when you're alone with an Uber driver. She said uh, he's a longtime South Bend guy. He just began to tell his story, and she could tell that he's been here for a very long time. And as they get closer to our location for a church, he turns off of Lafayette right over there and down the street past the jail and starts turning into our parking lot. And he says to her, nothing happens back here. Like, what are you doing back here? I think he was worried for her, you know what I mean? And she was moved, and then I was so moved. Um, like, I know, like, a lot of people feel that way about maybe this part of our city geographically or even this building, um, but we know better, right? Like, we know that there's a lot of beautiful things happening in our city, and we get to be a part of that, and it's part of why we love being right here because we want to change the story a little bit, you know? So that's really good. Uh, so you're here at a gathering. This is a great way to be a part of this community, uh, but we've also been talking about another way that you can grow in community here, and we call it tables because it's quite literally tables. And I'm letting you know one more week that the window's about to close if you want to sign up for this round. So we've got tables launching uh, all over our community. Some of them have already launched. And if you sign up for a table, you're basically signing up for a meal with the same group of people uh, roughly twice a month from now to the end of the school year. You're not signing up for homework or curriculum or like, you know, being put in a hot seat and having to show your darkest secrets, none of that. You're just signing up uh, for a more intentional space to grow together through a couple of uh, conversational questions that will drive those gatherings. And you can go online to our new website and you'll see tables right there on the front. If you click on that, you'll see where tables are meeting and when tables are meeting and if a table has a certain sort of demographic range on it and if that's a fit for you. And uh, you've got like a couple of days left on this round. We'll launch more tables probably in January and more after that. But if you want to get in on this, don't miss the next couple of days because we don't want to keep sort of endlessly adding people to existing tables because that might make it harder for those tables uh, to develop some roots together, right? Uh, so that's going on too. And then, uh, and then this, uh, we are on our way to baptisms on October 8th and 10th. It'll be the first time for our community to share that experience and that celebration. And so right now, we're, we're just sort of talking about what, what is at the center of, of that mom moment for a person in the water and what's at the center of our community and all that we're doing. And even if we didn't have baptisms coming up, I think it would be a really good conversation for us. Like, what's at the center of this? Because it's so easy to lose the center. Maybe you've felt that somewhere in your own 
religious experience or in what you've seen in the world. I, I'm reminded of all the ways that we lose the center because people reflect it back to me. Uh, when you're a pastor, sometimes what happens is that people collect all of their religious experience and then they project it at you as if you are both like the source and the reason for all of that, you know, which I completely understand. But as that happens, I realize like I'm getting a perspective on, on what people have been told is the center, on what they perceive the center to be, right? So like, like I think of all these examples that come to mind and quite frankly, they break my heart. And they remind me that we have to keep looking for the center to be clear from Jesus and in the scriptures. Like, I remember uh, a, a little while ago getting on an airplane and visiting a family member of mine and then having dinner with this family member and a couple of their friends. So these friends are people I've never met before, but they have heard about my work, which if you're a pastor, like, it's never low stakes. Sometimes it's, it's good, sometimes it's bad, but it's never neutral. And so I remember, like, I get to the dinner and I'm shaking hands with these brand new people I've never met before, and I'm not kidding, my butt has not yet hit the seat. I'm like on my way down to settle in, and one of these guys says, so you're a pastor, I'm gay, am I going to hell? But they weren't joking. I mean, they were very serious about that question, you know, and I thought, good grief, like, I know we have a lot of communities and a lot of voices that would say, like, the center of this thing, the center of it is drawing lines about who's in and who's out. I have other people, I've noticed when you're a pastor, sometimes what happens is when they discover that you're a pastor, they work overtime to make sure that you know that they're a good person. It's very performative. It gets really awkward for me, actually, because I'm like, I'm not that good of a person, and you're, you're pretending to be, and I'm not there, so then what are we going to do when you find out I'm not that good of a person, you know what I mean? And like, you can sense the performance going on as they sort of anxiously try to put this on and make sure that you know that, that they're okay because maybe this thing is just all about being a good person. Maybe that's the only thing it's about. I think about some meetings that I have with people sometimes who are perhaps exploring South Bend City Church and they wonder if they want to be a part of this community. Or really, I think what's going on there is they're wondering if they want to follow me. And I don't mean that like in some uh, arrogant way. Um, I'm only worth following as much as I'm following Jesus, but there's some practical sense in which we're a community with uh, a human leader whose job is to point us to God as our leader, but you're asking if you want to follow me, so we have a meeting. And these people have questions about our church, and I would have questions too if I were thinking about being a part of a new community. But it's interesting to me how many of these meetings only are concerned with one thing, and that's doctrine. So they'll say, you know, I've gone to your website, and all I've seen on your website is this pesky little thing called the Apostles' Creed and a lot of language about Jesus, so I need a lot more. <laughs> And so we'll sit down and they'll want like a 10-page bullet-pointed statement. They want to know how the mental furniture in my head is arranged about our beliefs. Now, for the record, I think doctrine is actually very important. I think pursuing the truth, understanding the truth is very important. But it's curious to me that like you're considering joining this community and following me, essentially. And we've got a meeting here and we'll meet for two hours and you'll push me on the ideas on the bullet-pointed statement that we haven't shown you, right? You'll push me on that. But for two hours, you won't ask me a single question about whether I've ever forgiven anyone. You won't ask me a single question about what darkness I've walked through with God. Like what crucibles have perhaps broken me and rebuilt me or in some way put me in touch with the Jesus story. It's just amazing to me. Like, where's the center of this? Is the center of it? a list of statements that could be written on a page, or is it something else, right? I think about the people who um, try to recruit me and our church into their partisan politics on both sides of the partisan divide. Now, for the record, I actually think that Jesus is very political because if by political you mean the ways that we build the world and the ways that we use power, 
which I think is a, a pretty adequate definition of political. I think Jesus is very political. I just don't think he's partisan. I don't think he's a Republican or a Democrat. And yet, like, there's that recruitment effort, right? Let's drag this thing into the partisan nature of our world today and get you on the right side of things. Like, where's the center of it? We have to keep asking that. So last week, we started asking that, and we opened the scriptures. And I want to do a bit of review, and then we're going to build on where we went last week. But let's begin here in the book of Matthew, where we were last week. This is Matthew chapter 4. And this is uh, sort of the the opening of Jesus' ministry on earth. And we read here that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news or the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So last week we hung out on that word gospel for a little bit. And I want to return to what we did last week. This word gospel, it has some context you might remember. There's context in the scriptures because we can look back a little bit and see the word gospel showing up in places like the book of Isaiah, the same Greek word in a translation there that would have been written here. Gospel there is talking about a, um, something that, that's really important because Isaiah and the prophet, it, it says there, you've got to go to a mountaintop and like, shout this. You've got to get everybody's attention. It's really important that people hear this gospel, this good word. And then you see in Isaiah that it's clearly a word about God because the gospel proclamation starts with, quote, like, here is your God. This is what your God is like. And then the gospel speaks to people who are very, very far away from home, who might wonder how they're going to get back to home, who might wonder if they have the strength to get back to home, who might wonder if when they get home, they'll be able to rebuild all of that. And the gospel word is God's with you in that. God is for you in that. God has not forgotten that you are far away from home, but he's ready to lead you home. That's, uh, that's, that's part of the, the textual background on this word. But there's, there's also a background not from the text, but from around the text, because at the time that the gospels like Matthew are being written, this word euangelion, which is the word for gospel, it's being used in the, in the political context around that text, not just in the text. And, and there we read about um, a world that's wondering how things will be put back together and held together, how order will be brought out of chaos, how peace will come from conflict. And in a world asking those questions, the Caesars show up, the Roman em- emperors. And, and they bring a certain kind of peace, a certain kind of order. They accomplish it in a certain kind of way with military power and threats of death. And it's basically like, like you're going to play by our rules or you're going to cease to exist on planet Earth. And that brings a certain kind of order to the world. And so there are written pieces that we can find from the ancient world that, com- that proclaim the gospel, quite literally, the gospel or the euangelion of Caesar. So this is a word not just for people who want to find their way home. This is a word for people who wonder how the world will be put back together, how it will be held together. This is a word for people who wonder how peace can come from violence, how order can come from chaos. Now, with Jesus, it begs the question, okay, if if he's going around using a word that's addressing those kinds of questions, those kinds of anxieties, those kinds of needs, what does Jesus think will address them? Like, what particular kind of euangelion, what particular kind of gospel, what's the content of his good news? And you saw it. We actually just kind of blazed right past it. But it says there in Matthew and many other places in the text, it says he's specifically proclaiming a good word about the kingdom, Later, in other places, we'd see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens in in Matthew's writing. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, the gospel of the kingdom. It's almost as if he's saying, like, well, first of all, it presumes a king, right? And that there is a king that we could call God who has a way of reigning, who has a domain where that reign is experienced. And there's some kind of good news about this kingdom that, that 
Somehow this kingdom is the answer for everyone who wants to find their way home. And somehow this kingdom is the answer for everyone who wonders how the world will be held together or put back together when it is breaking. Now, if you're Jesus and you're going around, you're making claims like that, like those are some pretty big claims, right? Like, if I'm, if I'm there and I'm listening to Jesus and he grabs this word that connects to all of my anxiety about my way home, that connects to all of my anxiety about how the world will be put back together, if he grabs that word and starts saying that he has something to say about it, something that addresses it, my next question is sort of like, back it up, buddy. Like, prove it. Like, okay, that sounds really promising, but how are you going to convince me? What evidence are you going to offer that, that this way of putting back the world together is the way that works, that, that there is a way to find our way home that we can actually rely on? Like, what do you have to back it up? And this, this is interesting to me because there's all of this sort of demonstration here in the text. Like the next verse, news about Jesus spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed and he healed them. So watch how this develops. I have an unexpected good word about you finding your way home, even though perhaps you've become convinced there's no way home. Like, I have an unexpected a good word for you about how the world might be put back together, even though you might be convinced it'll never be put back together, even though as it has broken, it's broken itself against you, even though as it is broken, perhaps you've been cut by the sharp edges of those broken pieces. Like, I have an unexpected good word for you and you say, I don't know, like, have any way to back this up? And then they see these very dramatic demonstrations um, that are more than, like, you know, fireworks, right? This is more than power. This is healing for people. And I, I imagine um, you're listening to this message, you're, you're hearing his claims, and then you're seeing him do these healing things. And at this point, you, you might begin to think, this, this is perhaps, like, actually something to pay attention to. Like, maybe... Maybe, maybe when he says this is actually good news for the world, like maybe I can begin to rely on this. And so it makes sense that these large crowds show up. Like verse 25, large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So Jesus has been going around offering a good word, and I suspect the crowds don't show up just because he's an entertaining preacher. I think the crowds are showing up because they're sort of hoping against hope, maybe this is true, maybe this is right, maybe this is real. Like maybe, maybe God is actually inviting us into a way of being in the world, a way of knowing him in the world that can walk us home and that can put things back together. But then I, I suppose another question gets raised for us, doesn't it? Like you're, you're hearing these claims that there's a way of being walked home, that there's a way of holding the world together. You're hearing the claims and you're seeing this fairly powerful representation that maybe this is real, maybe this is true. And then I suspect the next question is, am I eligible? Do I get in on this? There's a lot of crowds around here. Everybody's sort of trying to get a piece of this. Am I eligible for this? Like, who's in on this? If this is a kingdom, who has papers to sort of pass through customs, if you will, right? If this is, um, if this is a promise, who's the recipient of the promise? If this is uh, being knowing that God wants to walk you home, like, who will God walk home? What kind of person gets walked home? And so Jesus gets there on this mountainside. He sees these crowds, and he begins to speak. And I imagine myself, I'm on the edge of my seat. I wonder what he's about to say. And maybe I'll learn from what he says whether I'm in on this or not. So the next verse, we read this. He said, 
blessed. Now hold on right there. He said blessed. If you're hearing this uh, in the original tongue of Jesus, you're hearing this word ashray in the Hebrew. Now, Ashrei hits your ears, and kind of like Evangelion, has a lot of connections for you because you're a good Jew. So you've read the scriptures through and through, and you spent an extra amount of time in the Psalms. And the Psalms use this word Ashrei over and over and over again. Like the very first Psalm, Psalm 1, the first word of the Psalms, these prayers of the Hebrew people that are not just in their holy book, but that are in their liturgies every day of the week. These Psalms, the very first word is Ashrei, blessed, like on the right side of things, like the right kind of person, like the person who's the recipient of God's kindness and goodness. Ashray, blessed. But here's the thing. All of those statements tend to go the same general way. Psalm 1, every other place that you find this, more often than not, you're going to hear things like, Ashray are those who are righteous. Blessed are those who don't sit uh, among sinners or take the counsel of wicked people. Blessed Ashray. You're the kind of person who's in on this. You're the kind of person who's eligible for this. If you live an upstanding life, if you keep your ducks in a row, if you dot every I and cross every T, you're the kind of person who's eligible for this. So you've been watching Jesus, and he's saying, I have good news for you, because if you are a long way from home, God wants to walk home with you. If you are aching for the, how the world has broken apart, I have good news for you. And you say, is it really for me? And then he stands up, and he uses that word that hits you hard. Because every other time that you've heard that word, it didn't apply to you. Because you heard it and you said, that, that, that's not the category of people that I am in. And, and, and maybe you're like right there, you, you start walking away, but you stay close enough to hear the rest of the sentence. And then Jesus says something completely unexpected. This is out of left field. It's, it's almost so unexpected that it's nonsensical, that, that, it's, that it's absurd. He says, blessed, ashray, uh, eligible, uh, in on this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Be because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because th this good news is for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. W when you look within you where you would hope to find that energy that could take you home and you find nothing, it's okay. You have not been ruled out. When the world is breaking and you look within you for the courage or the strength, or the wisdom to put things back together, and you find nothing, or not enough. When, when you feel like um, you've been robbed of those things which sustained you from within, and you have nothing to offer, he says, Ashray, blessed. Just, just to make this word even more absurd for us, in the Greek, the word here is makarios, the blessed Makarios. For the Greeks, it means, get this, this is my favorite definition. I didn't come up with this. It's the blissful existence of the gods. Do you feel like the absurdity of that? Ashray, those who are poor in spirit. Like the, Makarios, the blissful existence of the gods, those who are poor in spirit. I mean, this is, again, this is like nonsensical. It's absurd. It doesn't even add up. And yet it's how Jesus begins to say, who is this for? You read through the Gospels, by the way, and you discover this kingdom, this good word, it is offensively inclusive. Like, it's problematically inclusive. It's problematic because, like this sentence, it breaks the equations that we've invested in. It, 
It disrupts the ways that we think God works and the world works. It, it, it literally doesn't compute. It's offensive to people, and yet Jesus comes right out of the gate, and this is his first word about who this kingdom is for. He keeps uh, speaking. He says, not only the poor in spirit, but he says also, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Uh, Mourning is not something that we would call blessed. By the way, it's interesting. If poverty of spirit is to find yourself with nothing inside, almost like that inner storehouse has been robbed, you've been left destitute in your soul, it's interesting that the, in mourning, the, one of the words that we use in English for mourning is bereaved or bereavement, which actually has its roots in the English for having been robbed, having had something taken from you that you needed so desperately. So he names the poor in spirit, and then he names those who mourn, and then he names the meek, which, again, it's it just counterintuitive. If what he's talking about is those who will find their way home, who will reclaim their territory, if what he's talking about is those who will begin to put the world back together again with God, the meek are the wrong people. It's funny. People, people try to, like, um, spin this word because we're trying to make sense of these blessings. It, like, sometimes these beatitudes are preached as, like, so let's all be poor in spirit. Like, let's try to be poor in spirit. I don't think that's the word at all here. Let's make ourselves cry a little bit. That's not the word here at all. Let's make ourselves meek, so let's find some understanding of meek that can be really praiseworthy. But I think that actually misses the point because you're trying to make sense of these things, and they don't really make sense. There's an absurdity here that's trying to break us open, that's trying to get us to let go of the equations that we think work in the world. He says the meek. He says, you are the one person who can't take for yourself, because you just don't have the, the goods, the strength, the talent, the power to grab what you need for yourself. And so while everybody else in this man, each man for himself, each woman for herself world, everybody else takes what they need, takes what they can get, you're left with nothing because you don't have the strength or the means or the ta- talent or the, or the power or the status to get those things for yourself. He says, you will inherit the earth. You don't have to take a thing. You'll, you'll simply receive the world as a gift. And then he says, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Now, this word righteousness is a little challenging, too. The Greek dikaiosune, it goes a couple of different directions. Any nerds here remember reading Plato's Republic in high school or college? Yeah, philosophy text, right? Yeah, if you go back through that book, it's interesting. So in that book, the same word that's translated righteousness here shows up again and again and again in Plato's Republic. But in Plato's Republic, it's always translated justice. And in certain older translations of the Bible, it's translated justice. Um, but it's interesting, you can kind of watch the pendulum swing in theology and history. So maybe we have an era where we are so obsessed with the system that we forget there are personal implications. And then we reclaim the word righteousness because it has this sort of personal implication. But then there are eras where we're all navel-gazing so much that we forget that there's a world that is breaking. And maybe we need that word justice brought back in. And Jesus is saying, when it, when it falls short, either you or the world around you, when it falls short, when it's not what it ought to be, when it's not, like, there is something inside you that knows this falls short. Something inside you is screaming about how this is not the way that things are supposed to be. It, maybe it's your personal life. It's the way that you are living, the way that you are making decisions and you find yourself incapable of, of living well or doing right. Or maybe it's the world around you and you see injustice around you or the family that you live with and love or the neighbors that are near you or your coworkers or what's in the headlines. You just, you see things that are not the way they are supposed to be. And so many of us are tempted in that moment to, well, some of, some of us just get angry and we tweet. 
And some of us, we, 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 we distract ourselves. You know, like, like when you're really, really hungry, but rather than going out and getting something healthy to eat, you just, you find some Oreos, which is something I keep coming back to in our sermons. I'm not sure why, but you know what I mean? So you just shovel those Oreos down, and for a minute, you're satiated, and yet you're sick, right? This is what we do when we ache for righteousness and justice, but then we don't know how to fill that. We don't want to sit with it. So Jesus begins, as he's talking about the kingdom, he's saying, this is what will walk you home. This is what will put the world back together. And he starts talking about who is welcome in this kingdom. And he names all these experiences of powerlessness. You have this poverty within you. It it can't drive you the way that you need to be driven. You are are weeping and mourning because something has been taken from you. And if you had power, you would have held on to it. And they would have never been able to have taken it. That dream, that person you love, that relationship. That, uh, you are meek. You, just straight up, you, do, you don't have what you need to have to take what you need for yourself. Or you are aching for something to be different and you don't know how to fix it. Jesus names all these experiences of powerlessness as, as sort of the entry point into this promise, into this good word, into this kingdom. It's interesting then, uh, look what he does next. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And here, it's almost, it's almost obnoxious what he does here. Because like, okay, you don't have the power within you that you want to have because you have that poverty of spirit. You, you are mourning and weeping for what's been taken from you. Like, in so many ways, you've experienced powerlessness. You have one kind of power left. You know what it is? To hold a grudge. It's that one little shred of power that you are holding on to, to reserve the right to punish, to act out, to hit back. It's that one final shred of power that you are holding on to, that grievance that you are nursing. And then he, he says, you, you probably are going to have to let that go. Not perhaps because God is stopping you at the door saying, I don't want you in my kingdom if you hold a grudge. More perhaps because like, the kingdom just doesn't work that way. It's a kingdom that's hardwired with grace. Like, it, like it's in the operating system of the kingdom. So you try to run that app of, of vengeance on this operating system and the whole thing, it just doesn't work. It's just incompatible. So he says the merciful are part of this thing. He says uh, the pure in heart are blessed for they will see God. Like those who find a way to resist their cynicism. Those who find a way to, to continue to see things pure in spite of all the reasons that we have to have that that darkened view of the world. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I used to think that's a really beautiful one, right? Like, who wouldn't want to be called a child of God? That's pretty good praise, right? But then I actually met some real-life bona fide peacemakers, like people who have gone deeply into conflict in the world to try to make peace. And you know what I found out? I think the reason God says that the peacemakers are called children of God is because nobody else wants you. If you're a peacemaker, nobody else wants you. Why would they? You haven't picked a side. You haven't chosen the tribe. You have relinquished your right to identify with any of the teams on the field because you're there to actually make peace where there isn't. Here here he's intimating at something, that, that this calling, this invitation, it might do something with you. It might do something with your life. It, if he's talking about exiles being walked home. Well, it may be that when you go to the land of exile to walk your friends home, you run into some resistance. 
If he's talking about that there is a way that the world might be put back together again, it may be that the powers that are breaking the world will have a problem with you. Which explains the last thing that he says here. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for they will be called children of God. Persecuted because of righteousness, for they will be called children of God. I think implicit in all of this is if you really follow this good news where it will take you, it will do something with you. It will change you. Now, you can't, you can't show up guns blazing. <laughs> you can't, you, you show up like, look at how full my spirit is. I don't need any of this. Like, it doesn't really form a meaningful starting point for this thing. But if, if we hear this invitation and, and we trust at all that Jesus means what he says and has the way of backing it up, then I, I think this is saying he will do something with you. You, you will become a, a, the best kind of problem in the world. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, you'll take an upside-down world and start to flip it right-side up. You'll find yourself handling the broken pieces but discovering how to begin to put them back together. You'll find yourself not only walking home but helping others find their way, too. Um, this is really good news. I don't know about you, but this is better news than what I often heard called good news in my religious experiences growing up. This is really good news. It's not easy news. It's not very lighthearted. It's news that takes us into dark places within us and in the world around us, but this is really good news. And it begs a question, like, so then what, what do you do? What are you going to do with it? Does this, like, call for anything? Well, there's a word for that, too. So we've talked about Evangelion, the gospel. We've talked about blessed, ashray, and Makarios, we talked about these words. There's another really important word in the mix here. And it shows up just before the passage we've looked at in Matthew, another place where Jesus is talking about the good news of the kingdom. Watch for this word. From that time, Jesus began to re proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I want to talk about the word repent for a second. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word repent, I have all these weird attachments too. Like I picture like angry preachers on street corners with posters. Maybe just me, I don't know. Like, like I picture this as like a very kind of hard-edged word. Um, it's a word that like it feels like it comes against me sometimes in the ways I've heard it preached or talked about. But uh, let's just ask ourselves if that's what's going on here. So the word repent um, has a couple of uh, context points. In the Hebrew, uh, it comes from teshuva, or it doesn't come from that, I mean that is the word. And it means uh, to return. Like apparently repent is a really good word for people who are far from home, right? Uh, in the Greek, I love this word, metanoeo, means to change your mind. It's almost like what's being said here is like, maybe you've been far away from home for far too long, and what's happened is you've decided to just plant your roots there and never come back. You've looked at the way home and you decided, I can't walk back. I don't have the strength to get back. I don't even know the way back. And by the way, when I get back, I'm going to walk back to a home that's decimated. Maybe it's a home that I ruined. I don't, I don't know. So we just decide to make peace, to compromise, to settle for that place very far away from home. And it's like Jesus is saying, no, listen to me. Like, if this is true, if this is real, if the good news that I'm bringing is actually for you, if it's so offensively inclusive that even Jason can be a part of this thing, like, if that's the word that I'm bringing here, then maybe it's time for you to stop making peace with that place that is very, very far from home. Maybe it's time for you to say, no, I want to return. 
or metanoia, or to change your mind. Maybe we have just decided, look, this is how the world works. It's a dog-eat-dog kind of world. So we will play the same kinds of power games to try to get ahead. Now, we'll try to do it nicely. We'll try to put a good wrapping on it. But we're essentially just going to play the same game. We're just going to decide this is reality at its deepest level. So we're just going to live with it. And Jesus, he's like making a case. He's saying, I'm putting forward a different idea. And I'm asking you, do you want to change your mind on that verdict? Do you want to decide differently? Because maybe the world doesn't actually get put back together like that. Maybe the world gets put back together by people who are trusting these absurd, paradoxical words from Jesus as he's trying to break us open and rebuild us from the inside out. Maybe that's how things actually get put back together. Do you want to change your mind on that? Almost like he's saying, like, hey, how's that working out for you anyway? That making your home very far away from home, how's that working out for you? That playing along with the way the world holds itself together, how's that working out for you? How's it working out for the world? Or do we just see the same story played over and over and over again, just different dates and characters, but the same breaking again and again and again? How's that working out for us, human race, right? It's like he's saying you could actually change your mind. You could actually decide to return. Now, there's still more here. Um, The next couple of weeks, there's a lot more. But I'm very convinced that a lot of us um, have planted our roots in a place far from home, and we don't have to. I'm very convinced that a lot of us have just resigned ourselves to the way the world works, and we decided to play along, but we don't have to. And if we decide to return, and if we change our mind, we will find that we are not alone in that. It's not on us. It's not our own strength. It's not something we just muster up from within us that will take us there. So uh, baptisms in a couple of weeks, we'll keep unpacking this. But before we go, um, Dan and the team taught us a new song last week that we thought might be a helpful song for this conversation that we're having. So we're going to return to it today. If you're unsure about all this, that's great. Like, we're not here to force anyone to pressure anything. You might want to just reflect for a bit and um, maybe ultimately decide, like, you disagree. That's great. Um, Or maybe some of these words from Jesus, they begin to sort of land on your heart pretty heavy, and you could just use a few minutes to sit with that and explore that. That's great. Or maybe uh, you hear these words from Jesus and you hear the words of the song, and it's, it's right where you are right now, and so you just want to sing. And uh, all that's uh, open to us as Dan leads us.